this week on the Backtable podcast. So our device can actually be deployed in, in such a manner that it can cover the neck of some aneurysm types that would not typically be uh, successfully treated by faux diversion. Uh, so it improves the, the chances uh, that those aneurysms will go away over time. And then and the material itself is actually proving to be much less thrombogenic uh, than metal as well, which is currently the main risk of placing a faux diverting stent into a blood vessel. So, you know, there are other things like better imaging properties, allowing you know physicians to get more accurate information about an aneurysm in a parent vessel from non-invasive imaging like a CT or MRI scan after placement of the stent as opposed to requiring an angiogram to get that same information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. My name's Deanna and I'll be your host this week. I'm a radiologist and biomedical engineer in London and super excited to welcome Dr. Alim Mitha to talk more about biodegradable flow diverters and the future of care and interventional neurology. So welcome. So why don't we start? Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Um, we can take it from there. Great. Uh, thank you. My name is Alan Mitha. I'm a cerebrovascular, endovascular, and skull-based neurosurgeon and biomedical engineer at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm also an associate professor of clinical neurosciences at the University of Calgary and faculty in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Why don't you tell me more about your journey? You know, you've mentioned biomedical engineering, you've mentioned working at the University of Calgary. You gave us a very brief background, but I want to know more. Yeah, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, and, and I have a background in cell and molecular biology at the University of Michigan. I did medical school at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, and, and the neurosurgical residency at the University of Calgary. Then I did a master's in biomedical engineering at uh, Harvard University, followed, I actually took some time out of my residency to complete that. And then following completion of my residency, I did two fellowships at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix. The first was uh, cerebrovascular and skull-based surgery with Dr. Uh, Robert Spetzler. And then the second was endovascular neurosurgery working with uh, Cameron McDougall and Philippe Albuquerque. And then uh, in Phoenix, I got married to my wife, Billy, who, I, who was doing a residency in pediatrics at the time. And then uh, I joined here in Calgary as staff in 2011 and set up a, a research lab focused on tissue engineering and biomedical device development. That sounds epic. So tell me more, like what, what did that lab creation look like? You know, you, you joined the staff, you said in 2011, did you go straight into having your own lab and working towards commercializing a product or was that something that came later? Yeah, so I, I always had a love for engineering and tinkering from a young age. And, and when I went to the University of Michigan, I actually lived on the engineering campus at the University of Michigan. And if you've, if you've ever been there, it's really grand, but inviting at the same time. Awesome. And when, when was the sort of the shift towards endovascular? Do you mainly work in endovascular or you still, do you still work sort of across the board? 
Yeah, I work across the board. I still do open operations, a lot of skull-based tumors, pituitary tumors, and also do endovascular uh, procedures. Great. So interventional neuroradiology might be new to a lot of our listeners. So why don't we take it right from the top? Can you just briefly explain to us what is a flow diverter and what, what is its role in interventional neuroradiology? Yeah, a flow diverter is a metal mesh that is placed inside the blood vessel to treat an aneurysm. As opposed to traditional ways of treating an aneurysm through the blood vessels, which includes coiling and requiring the catheter to get into the weakest part of the aneurysm, a flow diverter is very different in that it is placed in the main blood vessel but not into the aneurysm itself. And it has enough material, typically metal, that is allows it to divert blood flow away from the aneurysm, causing it to clot off. Awesome. And is this essentially like an endoluminal reconstruction is kind of what's jumping jumping into my mind. Exactly. Exactly. It's, a, it's kind of a two-phased approach to treating an aneurysm. The first phase is actually diverting the blood flow and causing the aneurysm to clot off. But then the second phase is that endoluminal reconstruction that you mentioned, which includes endothelial cells from the patient's body lining up over the aneurysm neck in order to completely exclude the aneurysm from the circulation. Awesome. And how have they evolved? Is this a relatively new technology or something that's now quite well established? Great question. So flow diverters started out as FDA approved in around 2011. They haven't evolved very much over the past decade or so. They have improved in terms of things like their delivery systems and in some of the materials that they are made with to make them more radio-opaque or visible for the interventional neuroradiologist or neurosurgeon implanting the device. But overall, the structure of the stent itself has not evolved very much over the last decade. And what about its indications? You know, from the experience I have in medical device development, one of the biggest challenges that we have with new uses of something like a stent is making sure that it has the that we can use it in the patients where we think they might benefit. So is this is has this been the case for flow diverters? Um, what kind of patients can you use these in? Any any aneurysm or is it quite selective? Yeah. Flow diverters are typically used for patients with sidewall aneurysms or fusiform aneurysms. Initially they were approved for aneurysms of the anterior circulation, so things like a superior hypophyseal aneurysm or a posterior communicating artery aneurysm or an ophthalmic aneurysm. But that indication is expanded to uh, things to aneurysms in the posterior circulation and also fusiform aneurysms uh, in the posterior circulation. And can you just briefly explain what are the benefits of a flow diverter over, for example, a coiling or an alternative treatment option in this population? Yeah, so the benefits of flow diversion are that you put the stent inside the main blood vessel and don't actually have to go into the weakest part of the aneurysm, which is the dome. Manipulating devices or putting coils into the dome of the aneurysm is probably the highest risk of the procedure. And a practitioner typically would like to avoid that if, if they can. There's a rupture rate of about 10% or so by putting devices into the aneurysm dome. Whereas a flow diverter, you stay in the main blood vessel, you simply deploy the flow diverter uh, into the main blood vessel without putting a catheter into the dome. And it is much more safer from that perspective. It makes a ton of sense. 
Yeah. And the downside of photoverters, of course, is that you're putting something into the main blood vessel and something with quite a bit more metal uh, than the blood vessel would be exposed to in the case of, say, uh, aneurysm bridging stent. And so the thrombogenic risk is probably the biggest risk of a photoverter. And it is, has this been the basis of sort of your research and the idea behind biodegradable flow diverters? Maybe we should just jump straight in. Why don't you just describe what it is you're building and what, what are the mm-hmm. key advantages of a biodegradable flow diverter? So I guess we're getting at kind of where did the idea for a bioabsorbable stent come from? Yeah, yeah, let's start there. During my training, uh, whenever we considered placing a stent, we always considered the age of the patient. And I found it very interesting that that we would always consider uh, if the you know the age of the patient because we would be less likely to choose to put a stent in patients who are younger. And of course, all intravascular stents require antiplatelet agents. And in the decision-making process for how to treat treat, for instance, like a wide neck aneurysm in an older patient, you know, stenting or stent-assisted coiling seems like a reasonable first choice. But when you look at a younger patient, we would always put stenting lower down on the list because, uh, and often, you know, uh, prioritizing surgical clipping in a younger patient over leaving anything behind in their blood vessel for a long period of time. This was even more an issue when flow diverting stents came on the market uh, around 2011 since these stents have so much more metal and they require even a longer duration of dual antiplatelet therapy compared to the aneurysm bridging stents. Uh, yeah, just to be explicit, your concern is, you know, them thrombosing off and causing a major stroke. Exactly. And, you know, we all know patients who have had, been on dual antiplatelet therapy and then they, you know, transition to single antiplatelet therapy after a photoverting stent, say even, you know, the, the you know, six months uh, later, which is, you know, when a lot of uh, physicians recommend to, to stop uh, one antiplatelet and just continue on the other antiplatelet uh, like aspirin. And then they stop the aspirin at some point for whatever, a surgical procedure, and then they get a thromboembolic event. And so they have to stay on the aspirin for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, when you want to you know, subject a younger patient to to uh, the requirement the requirement of being on an antiplatelet for the rest of their lives, you always think twice about doing that. So just to bring you back to, you know, where the idea came from, you mentioned, you know, you're doing your neurosurgical yeah. residency, you're working as a neurosurgeon, and it's bizarre, you're in these MDT discussions, multidisciplinary discussions, and you're, mm-hmm. you're choosing not to treat young patients. So what, what, what was the next inspiration? Mm-hmm. Like, what made you think, I got to do something about this? Thinking about how to make the technology more available and effective for younger patients uh, without necessarily having them have to kind of have the long-term repercussions of, uh, of antiplatelet therapy. The most obvious uh, thing is to actually create a, a stent that serves its purpose for the time it needs to serve its purpose and then just dissolve over time so the patient can then uh, not worry about having to take uh, the blood thinners. And so uh, at that time, kind of newer materials were coming out. There were other uh, fields that were incorporating absorbable components into their uh, implants and, and devices, and so so it it was uh, logical to to uh, try to to make a an absorbable stent. It would have been very difficult to try to get some of those stents up into the intracranial circulation through the tortuous uh, pathways. So then we we shifted uh, our thinking. A little bit, and and uh, and went to a, uh, a braided design. Uh, this was all, you know, with the help of very talented people and and uh, students so, uh, along the way. 
we we designed and prototyped a braided bioabsorbable stent. That's awesome. And tell me a little bit more about how it works. So you have a young patient, they have an aneurysm. You're using the stent like flow diverter, like any other flow diverter, right? You're bridging the main vessel uh, to block off that aneurysm. Um, how long does it last? How long can, can, when you're consenting a patient, how long can, can they expect it to be there for? Yeah, so different materials can uh, can actually be tuned to last a, a, a different amount of time. And so what we were thinking about when we chose a material was uh, how long it typically takes for a stent to, or sorry, for an aneurysm to, to go away. And we know that there's data out there that says aneurysms typically take about, you know, one year or more to actually occlude after you put in a flow diverting scent. And, and that occlusion rate actually increases over the first couple of years. So we wanted our device to stick around for at least that long and then, and then uh, go away. So that's how we uh, kind of approached uh, choosing a material. Uh, these materials nowadays can, you know, like, as I mentioned, uh, you can choose uh, a host of different polymers that have different, different mechanical characteristics and, and based on their, their uh, processing and their molecular weight, they can dissolve at different time points. It's so great that, you know, this is something that we can tune and that we can, we can put into, put into patients. So sort of drawing from the preclinical lab experiments, was this something that had to evolve over years? It sounds like, especially when you're working in the biodegradable space. It must have uh, been a long journey. Yeah, it sure has. And, and there's been a lot of learning along the way. So, you know, the, um, the development and prototype piece is only one piece of starting a, a business and trying to commercialize a device. You know, I was fortunate enough, uh, enough to be working with a partner. His name is John Wong. And, and while I brought the technical background, he brought the management background and actually did a uh, master's in uh, business administration at, at Wharton. And together we were able to make this kind of a, a viable uh, commercial startup entity. And what did you do? So, you know, you've been working in the lab. It started, what, 2011. When did, when did you incorporate a company and when did you go and look for, for funding? Yeah, so we, we incorporated in uh, 2012. It took us a while to come up with a, a workable prototype. As I mentioned, you know, we would iterate uh, and, and implant them, find out what the biological response was. And, and you know, in, in many cases, we had to go back to the drawing board and, and design, make design changes. And, uh, and then eventually we had our, you know, workable prototype around 2019. The next thing that the big thing that happened uh, with us is we became involved with this uh, startup incubator out of the University of Calgary called Creative Destruction Lab. And, and that really kick-started uh, our thinking in terms of uh, how to now take this uh, a prototype and uh, raise money and then uh, hire people and make it a business. And where are you at now? I hear you have a, a, a team together and there's you know lots of people behind this taking this to the next step. Yeah, exactly. So we, we are still primarily a preclinical company but we recently started our first uh, international, first in human uh, clinical trial for the scent. So, so we are now in, uh, in, in patients. The clinical trial is ongoing, but preliminary results have been encouraging. Nice. You'll have to come to the brain conference to, to find them out. I've seen, I've seen you on the program. <laughs> yeah. So we briefly touched upon it earlier. You mentioned, you know, we've got this option for a biodegradable flow diverter. But I'd love to understand more. What are the advantages? Like what, as a physician, why would I choose a biodegradable flow diverter? 
Yeah. So, you know, over and above just the fact that, that it will absorb over time. And in the case of a persisting aneurysm, you could potentially reaccess that aneurysm. And, uh, you know, the obvious uh, benefits of, of being able to, say, discontinue your antiplatelet agents over time, it turns out there are more benefits than just those. Mechanical properties of, of metal are very different than polymer and how the device actually behaves, for instance, or how it conforms to the anatomy uh, is actually uh, more favorable for the uh, um, uh, stents made out of polymer. So our device can actually be deployed in, in such a manner that it can cover the neck of some aneurysm types that would not typically be uh, successfully treated by faux diversion. Uh, so it improves the, the chances uh, that those aneurysms will go away over time. And then and the material itself is actually proving to be much less thrombogenic uh, than metal as well, which is currently the main risk of placing a faux diverting stent into a blood vessel. So, you know, there are other things like better imaging properties, allowing, you know, physicians to get more accurate information about an aneurysm in a parent vessel from non-invasive imaging, like a CT or MRI scan after placement of the stent, as opposed to requiring an angiogram to get that same information. Let's get into the imaging a little bit more because I find that really interesting. So, Talk us through, what, why, why is having a polymer more beneficial to CT and MRI imaging? You know, you mentioned that it has advantages, but can you explain it a little bit more? So the um, bioabsorbable stent also has benefits in terms of imaging uh, because the, there's much less, or in, in some cases, no metal uh, in the bioabsorbable stent. So you, you don't have that uh, artifact that you typically see with, with uh, metal stents showing up on a, a CT scan or an MRI scan. Typically, uh, a full metal stent, in order to get really good information about any residual aneurysm or the parent vessel, whether there's things like instant stenosis or, or thrombus, you, you need to do a, a digital subtraction angiogram, which is, of course, a, a more invasive procedure for the patient. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, like the if you put the stent in a young person, over their lifetime, they may need brain imaging for any other reason. Um, and this allows them to, there's nothing here that's going to stop them from having that, which is which is amazing. Great to talk through some of the benefits of the biodegradable flow diverter. So you've briefly mentioned, you know, this first in human trial. And I'm always curious to learn more about what your thought, what a founder's thoughts are on clinical adoption. So, you know, there's tons of innovators. They have loads of great ideas. And then when you put it out in the market, you know, people are love to ask questions. I mean, physicians are the same all over the world. Always questioning, but why? What kind of, what's the early feedback you've received from physicians? Um, and do you think that there's going to be like a big challenge to overcome in getting this out there to the world once it, it's regulated? Early feedback is, is very promising in terms of its deliverability to be, you know, we want to make it the same as kind of any other metal flow diverting stent uh, on the market that, that uh, physicians are, are used to deploying. You know, and, and to actually increase adoption, we really have to uh, prove out the value propositions, which we are you know, currently in the process of doing. So I think that that, that message uh, will be very important about the benefits of a, of a uh, um, polymeric bioabsorbable stent compared to the, the metal ones. Um, we'll, that'll be very important for early adoption. So we're not using metal, right? What materials can you use that are stiff enough and have the an appropriate mesh density, length, deployability, such that they can function as a flow diverter. I think newer materials will be developed over time that, that can serve the purpose even better than the materials we have available now. So currently the materials that we're looking at now to create bioabsorbable stents include things like poly-L lactic acid, 
polyglycolic acid, polycaprolactone, things like that, which are polymers that essentially degrade over time. And are they stiff enough to achieve what a flow diverter does? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Of course, you don't want too much stiffness because metal can can sometimes cause bad things to blood vessels if they're too stiff. Things like intimal hyperplasia and changing the direction of blood flow because of their stiffness or causing the blood flow to adapt more to the stents configuration as opposed to adapting more to the blood vessel. Uh, but in general, the polymers are a little bit softer and they are a little bit more yielding. So they're less likely to put as much radial force on the inside of a blood vessel, uh, but more likely to conform to the blood vessel. And I can imagine that's a huge benefit, especially in small in the small arteries that are in the brain. Exactly. And what about its sort of, sort of its deployability? Does using polymers create a problem with the delivery system or is it quite compatible? So using polymers in terms of uh, delivering them is interesting because you don't actually find that you need a stiff of a delivery catheter to get the polymeric stent into place. So in general, today's catheters are over-engineered for uh, bioabsorbable stents that may be uh, coming out in the future. Awesome. And sort of in the preclinical lab experiments or any on the, in the trials that in the experiments you've been involved in, how long does it take to degrade? So if you put this into, say, a 35-year-old, when can they expect this to be resorbed? These stents are, can be um, made out of materials that are actually chosen based on the length of time it takes for them to degrade. And of course, that in turn is typically chosen based on the application of the stent. So in the case of a photoverting stent for an aneurysm, you usually want the absorbable material to stick around for as long as it typically takes an aneurysm to heal, which is about a year or up to two years in that range. So at that point, you want the stent to dissolve or most of the stent to dissolve. If you choose a material that dissolves too quickly, then there can be issues with potentially aneurysms recurring or not being uh, fully treated, meaning that the endothelial cells don't actually line up and create that, that new blood vessel wall or uh, parent vessel wall that you want to fully exclude the aneurysm from the circulation. So I would think in this application, you would want the stent to stick around for at least a couple of years. Is material science sort of, has it advanced enough so that we can be confident that it's only going to last two years? Or is this something that, you know, is still to be answered? Material science has actually come a long way and you can choose the same material and actually get a different molecular weight out of that material, depending on how you process it. And then that molecular weight actually in turn feeds into how long it will take for it to absorb. So you can certainly choose materials and specifically their molecular weight to actually design when you want the scent to go away. I'd love to hear more about the prototyping stage, my personal favorite part. You, <laughs> it's all of ours, isn't it? <laughs> you mentioned that you you and John worked together to to create something physical that you could show investors and like we can't underestimate how powerful that is. I know a lot of our listeners have their heads bustling with ideas. What was it that helped you build that prototype? Was it being affiliated to an academic institution? Was it the fact that you're doing these procedures on a day-to-day -day basis? Or what did you have the inherent skill set from your biomedical engineering background? 
you always leave your academic program having some skills, but never all the skills to actually do uh, what what you uh, what you sometimes envision you want to do. So you know, mine mine is in biomedical engineering, and uh, and you know, I came together with John Wong, who is my my partner at work, and he's also an endovascular neurosurgeon, and he is his skill set was in uh, in management, and so he actually did a uh, business degree, an MBA, an ex- executive MBA through Wharton, which is ver- which was very impressive because he did it during like while he was uh, a staff person. But uh, essentially, you know, what we had to do to get to the prototype stage was uh, essentially work through my laboratory. So I have a laboratory at the University of Calgary. It's focused on biomedical engineering and biomedical device development. We also have some tissue engineering uh, projects going on in the lab. But we have uh, numerous talented students, uh, including PhDs and master's students, who helped us get to this point along the way. Essentially, uh, the idea morphed over time. Initially, we we were, tried to create a laser cut stent, but polymers can actually be too brittle for doing that properly. They can be stiff when created uh, using lasers and then very difficult to get up through the tortuous anatomy. And so at some point, we shifted to a, a braided type of flow diverting stent and then essentially just kind of bootstrap that mission uh, to get a, a prototype completed, failed a couple of times, and then and then finally got a working prototype. And I'm sure that that must have been a great moment where you could take this physical flow diverter to the accelerator that you mentioned. And we can't, like, like I said previously, you can't underestimate how, how powerful that is. Absolutely. The, you know, the interesting thing about it is that a stent is only a part of the the final device. The delivery system was actually the the most complicated part, even though it's not the part that that you leave behind. So we had to do a lot of learning in terms of how to actually deliver what we had what we had prototyped in terms of the stent. And what what were the main challenges? I'd love to know. Yeah, creating a delivery system. Of course, polymers are are very different in terms of how they behave, as you mentioned. Just like you know the. They're not as um, uh, stiff as, as metal. And so you have to create a delivery system that kind of treats the polymer uh, gently and is able to get it up to where you need it to go. It sounds like you had to like rationalize the, the engineering that had been done previously. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's always, um, you know, you always kind of develop something. And the first thing you do is learn what's out there already. And so there was a lot of learning to do. Nice. So you've mentioned already that, you know, you've got your first in human trial. And after that, you know, the big hurdle is always regulatory. So is the aim for this first in human trial to feed into that? Yeah. So our first in human trial is just a few patients. We're trying to learn as much as we can about the device and how it behaves. You know, our goal is to get, uh, you know, just a few patients so that in, you know, our primary outcome measures would be things like uh, technical feasibility and safety. Those are they're always the first kind of two things we want to learn the most about our device in terms of a first in human trial and also get efficacy information as well. The goal after that is to do a larger kind of efficacy trial where we learn uh, about um, once we prove safety just to learn about uh, the efficacy of our device and, and compare it to some of the existing devices on the market. And what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge in achieving that scale up? I know it's difficult to say because, you know, you've only really got preclinical data today, but what Mm -hmm. do you think is going to be the biggest challenge? 
the biggest challenge in terms of kind of taking it to the next clinical trial? Is that the question? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to hint at is, do you think clinical adoption might be a, might be a challenge here? So considering how this is su- such a novel approach with a novel delivery system, do you think you're going to have any any um, hurdles to overcome when thinking about clinical adoption? Yeah, that, that's a really good question too, because you know physicians have to have a different mindset uh, and a different purpose for you know putting in a forward diverter that is absorbable versus one that is um, that is uh, permanent. Of course, ease of use is is paramount. Uh, physicians have to be able to use this easily and and not requiring any other kind of resources compared to uh, the existing um, uh, flow diverting stents has to be straightforward and using similar size catheters as everyone is used to, but they have to see real benefit in it. And that's what we're hoping to do with uh, with the clinical trials is actually uh, show that there's, there's much more benefits uh, to an absorbable stent uh, uh, compared to traditional metal ones. And what's the early feedback you have had from from physicians and potential future collaborators? Yeah, early feedback has been very good. There are definitely some other advantages of an absorbable scent over and above what you would think of in terms of it just going away for the most part over time. Things like its mechanical properties uh, or um, you know being able to retreat an aneurysm if it does stick around after flow diversion because that's one of the biggest value propositions uh, also to an absorbable scent is that you don't permanently lose access to the dome or the sac of the aneurysm, it actually, you know, you can, can re-access it. Uh, whereas with a metal photoverting scent, you've essentially lost complete access to the, uh, to the sac of the aneurysm in, mm. in the case that it, it should uh, stay persistent. Great. And so what advice would you give to yeah. new, new docs or established docs that have an idea and they want to, you know, take it from that zero to one that we were mentioning? What, what would be your golden, golden tips? Okay, so there are a couple of things in terms of, you know, for others who want to start on, say, an entrepreneurial journey, you know, they have a good idea and they want to implement it. I would say it's very difficult to do it on your own. Get a good partner. There are a lot of decision points along the way and having a sounding board and in, in someone who doesn't necessarily think the same way as you do, but, but has a common goal in mind is very helpful. So I think that that would be one piece of advice there. There will be ups and downs along the way and try to but try to enjoy the entire experience because ultimately you should be doing this to try to give yourself some sort of satisfaction that even for a short period of time you've actually made the world world a better place or or improve patient outcomes so uh it, it is it's a, a challenging journey managing people learning new skills but it is definitely worth it in the end having tried it yeah, definitely worth trying to get from that zero to one. And to your point, making sure that you you find other partners with the skill set. And that's sort of what we touched upon earlier, right? It's uh, the PhDs and the master's students that are working in your lab. And you know what? They're not physicians. Like their expertise is not not the patient care and the clinical adoption. Their expertise is in overcoming those manufacturing challenges and, and really taking a step forward. That's what really takes things forward and allows and locks the funding that we also touched upon. I'd love to understand a little bit more about what the setup looks like with the University of Calgary. I, you know, I've heard great things. I yeah. hear that it's it's a it's a bed of innovation. It actually is. I don't know if everyone working in an academic environment can actually say this, but the University of Calgary is is one of the best places in North America right now to go from academic research to commercialization. 
it's interesting because in this geographic area in Canada, we've been you know traditionally focused on oil and gas as the main driver of our economy, but partly in response to political and environmental policy changes that are shifting the way we think. Calgary, in particular, the University of Calgary is, is really leading the way in terms of trying to create opportunities and elevate other economic uh, drivers uh, in, in the local community, so like, like life sciences and technology. So University of Calgary is actually the, Canada's number one startup uh, creator in all of, of Canada. And this is mainly because it creates a favorable startup environment, things like removing red tape, uh, facilitating IP protection, but but allowing the creators of the IP to own their own work, creating centers for innovation within the university, including physical spaces and even investing in the startups that create they create. And uh, many universities, on the other hand, mandate uh, that the IP be filed and assigned to the university uh, and then licensed by the creators. So we have a very favorable uh, environment for that, and really fortunate to be making this this effort of commercializing our stent technology from where we are, uh, and it's played a huge uh, role in our success so far. You know, I, I was focused on on medicine, but I briefly considered transferring into engineering. Me too. And, me but, too. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I wouldn't have been able to fit in all my pre med courses, so I bailed on that idea, and and like you, then then decided to do bioengineering at a later stage. But I was actually fortunate to do, to do that because then I thought about bioengineering again after I started neurosurgical residency and realized that, you know, especially neurointervention is really heavily focused on, on biomedical devices, whether it be the implants or you know, the delivery systems, catheters, things like that. But more than that, I think I realized that, that these devices don't always work the way that physician wants them to. And, and more importantly, they don't always work the way the patient wants them to, meaning that, that they're not always effective. So it, it, during my residency, it became really apparent to me that that there's a lot of room for improvement with some of these devices. And so that's when I kind of uh, took a few years off of clinical residency, went back to do a master's degree in biomedical engineering uh, at Harvard University and, and worked with uh, some, some great people, including Chris Ogilvy at the Mass General Hospital. He's a very uh, good mentor and friend, and he really facilitated and fostered my interest in novel treatments. And then in his lab, and with the help of of uh, uh, Brian Ho is another dear friend. I learned I learned the modified elastase model that um, Brian initially described. Uh, so I, when I started on staff here, I actually brought that model uh, back to Calgary and and set it up in my lab. and And having that lab piece uh, to the to the company uh, has been really important. Once we developed this idea and kind of cultivated it to the form that was it was in into kind of an, an early, early prototype stage, we obviously had to learn about how it would behave in a biological system. And having uh, the in vivo model at our disposal mm. through the lab really helped us to iterate the device very quickly, which, which doesn't always happen in kind of a, a, an, you know, an industry's own set, alone setting. So having that kind of um, that lab piece really helped us to refine the prototypes and, and do things like refine the delivery system uh, and kind of advance uh, the product to where it is. That's great. And it's so it's good that, you've, you know, you've had promising early feedback um, and it sounds like you have a pipeline of clinical trials that are going to lead to this adoption. You know, it's very easy to just think about the first in human and not have the the pipeline of evidence generation that's going to lead to this flow diverter being available in every single neuro IR and geo suite in the world. So very happy to hear more about that and super excited to see the trials in action. 
because they'll they'll be big ones. Yes, it will be. It's uh, it's really exciting. You know, we're taking one small step at a time, but of course, uh, we have uh, um, you know high hopes for this and and are looking forward to seeing how the rest of the story unfolds. Me too. It's been great to have you on the show. Uh, really incredible to learn more about biodegradable flow diverters. Um, and it's been great to hear your insights of you know how you can turn a medical degree and a biomedical engineering degree into a product that is out there and will be making a difference to patients pending these exciting results trials it's been super great to to learn more about biodegradable flow diverters and you know the incredible career and on onwards journey of uh, of where you guys are heading so it's it thank you for coming on back table and really excited to learn more and meet you in person at brain all right well thanks for having me and i look forward to seeing you and everyone else at Brain in December. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong. Michael Barraza and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Mandir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.